We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, hello, listeners. I'm going to jump. We've got a lot to go through in this one, and I'm going to try to keep it under about 45 minutes. I'm actually a little bit pressed for time, so I don't really ever want to put a time limit on God for what he wants to achieve. So I'm going to try to keep it under about 45 minutes on this one, and if we need to, then we'll just do a second part to it, and we'll let God work how he wants to on this. But I'm going to jump right into this. Um, you know, Welcome. If, if you've been joining us with this on this podcast series through Hebrews, if this is your first time, man, you you have picked a doozy of one to go through because there's going to be things that not only are piggybacking off of what the author has been talking about the last three chapters or so in regards to the law and how the physical has now been done away with in order to establish the spiritual in Christ. Um, but we're going to talk about some things that I think are, are going to be, as I put at the end of chapter 9 podcast, a large dagger in the heart of some of the doctrine that as at least in my area where I'm at in the south, in, in central Texas, um, is prominent and, and prevalent in the in the church today. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to get right into this. Um, in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, that first word being for, um, you know, goes back and links it to what he's talking about. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the chapter 9 podcast. But essentially, it's the reality that that first covenant that God made with his people at Mount Sinai about, you know, hey, do all these 613 commandments and life will be good for you. You'll find your life by your obedience to that. Um, if you don't do it, it's not going to go good for you. That concept is still applied in the new covenant, but the reality is that covenant has been made with Christ. So your position with God and your standing with God comes through your standing with Christ, not in your performance of commandments, right, if you will. And so is it important? Absolutely. James one twenty two says that you purify your souls through your obedience to the truth. Or as John 14.15 says that if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And you're actually, your love for him is proven by your obedience to him. Um, your obedience actually leads to your sanctification, as Romans 6.16-19 6, talks about. So is it important? Absolutely. James 2 even talks about it. He says that you'll be justified by your works, not just by faith. Meaning that your faith puts you in a standing with Christ. Right? You come into salvation by that faith. But the works, whether your obedience or your disobedience, it doesn't necessarily prove your faith is what James 2 is stating. What it's saying is that it will strengthen or weaken your faith. That's why he's talking about it in James chapter 2 in this concept of show me your faith by your works. Your faith will be not necessarily proven, though that's a true statement. If you say you came to know Christ, but your works are nothing but the flesh, you didn't come to know him. That's just what First John is talking about, right? You weren't really born of God. But the reality is, is that you could come into Christ, be an infant of the flesh, and being doing some of those things that First Corinthians 3 is stating, and your faith will get stronger when you obey, but it'll get weaker when you disobey. So James 2 is simply just stating, your faith alone, without supplementing the right kind of works to it, is not going to be enough to, in the end, save you. Because it will weaken your faith to the point of where we talked about in Hebrews 6 podcast, to where you could potentially apostatize. Now, that... Um, is <laughs> uh, kind of a really lengthy bunny trail. I'd encourage you to just listen to all the Hebrews podcasts that I've done in this entire series and, and you'll have a better understanding of what I'm talking about there. But the reality is, going into this one, 
And man, man, why did I even get on that bunny trail? In verse 1, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, or as the Greek word is melo that's used there, means uh, whether it's present tense or past tense, um, it's referencing that there has been something that has been better that has now been brought. Okay, It says, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, meaning the law of Moses, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Meaning those who would draw near to God. Through the sacrificial system set up by the blood of bulls and goats primarily, and even heifers or whatever. It can never perfect our conscience. It can never achieve um, what God wants to achieve in his people. All it can do is be a band-aid and a cover-up. Because that's all it was designed to do. It was a temporary system set up until the eternal redemption of Christ came forth. This is what he goes on to say. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now understand this. The blood of bulls and goats could forgive sins. You look at the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system set up in that one. You would see that if you did it according to God's way, it says you would be forgiven of those sins. Those sins would be washed. But they would keep coming back. And here's what I mean by that. You would still not be have dominion over your flesh. It would still have dominion over you. Because the blood of bulls and goats, all it did was cover sin. It didn't actually purify your conscience and give you dominion over that sin. Only through Christ do we have that. The law couldn't do it. You're going to be a sinner. And you might have you know, um, the ability to have that sin forgiven. But you still were of the flesh. You were not of the spirit. You were not come in through Christ. This is why in 2 Corinthians 5 he says that we have the authority through Christ... To take every thought captive. Every thought. You have authority. You never had that under the law of Moses. It wasn't there. And so when he says. That it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. To take away sins. It means to take away sins. Curse over your life. You are still going to be a servant to your flesh. Or a servant to sin. Just like Genesis 4, 6 says, that sin is crouching at the door, it's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Problem was, nobody could do that. That's why it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. God says, I know your heart. Your heart is not purified. It's not right before me. Only through Christ do we gain a new heart. It's called the circumcision of the flesh. The old could never achieve it. Because it was designed as a temporary system until Christ came. And this is what it goes on to say. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. This is in a microcosmic statement. Summarizing the last four chapters of Hebrews. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Now specifically in chapter 10 right here, he's referencing the sacrificial system of the blood. The blood that was to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins under the old covenant. He says, I have completely done away with that in order to establish the second one, the better one, the greater one. That's not just a copy or a physical form of things. It's the spiritual reality of them like he talked about in the, in the very beginning. This is the spiritual reality of what we have received in Christ through the blood of Christ. And he says, in this passage, in what was quoted as a prophecy for the coming of Christ, as was stated in verse 5, he says, once that body has been given for you, the body of Jesus Christ, as Isaiah 53 talks about, where he says that it pleased God to give us Christ. 
Once that body has been offered for you, that temporary sacrificial system of the blood of bulls and goats to be a temporary band-aid over your sin or the sin nature in you, it is no more. Why do I say this? Why am I emphatic about what he's talking about? Because a lot of people would agree with this. It's because there are some people who I've heard, because they don't have a clear understanding of the word, they're weak in faith, they don't understand what the cross has purchased, they believe that we would still have to, even though they, could, they say that Christ is their Lord, that we would have to still go back to Jerusalem to offer the sacrificial system of the Levites. We would have to still go and sacrifice bulls and goats for the atonement of our sins, because it's stated in the law of Moses. Now, you might think that's absurd, and I would agree. But I've heard people who have said this, who pledge that Christ is the Messiah, Christ is Lord of the life, but they say that if the temple was, was put back and, and restructured back in Jerusalem, that we would have to go there at the times allotted in the law to go back and offer sacrifices. What does God say in his word? Sacrifices and offerings I take no pleasure in. Why? Because I've given you my son. That is the only blood I will look upon for the forgiveness of sins. You can go offer the blood of bulls and goats and, the, and, and all of it according to the law of Moses. And God says, I won't look at it. Because I gave you my son. That is the only blood that you will plead. That is the only blood that you will come under to find forgiveness. That is the only blood that I will look at and take any pleasure in. He says, I've taken no pleasure in those anymore because I gave you a body. And Jesus says, I have come to do your will as it's written of me in the book. He gave himself as it was written of him in the law. And the prophets and the Psalms. All of it points to Jesus. But now that he's come and he has done the will of God, not his own will, but the will of the Father, those things of old are done away with. They've been made obsolete. They've been, as he says, he's done away with the first in order to establish the second. That is the epitome of the last four chapters. It's really the epitome of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is trying to get these Christians to understand. You are not supposed to go back to live under the first covenant. It has been annulled. It has been abolished. If you don't understand what I mean on that, I've talked about it at length in chapters 2, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. It has been abolished in Christ. You might be thinking of Matthew 5. You might be thinking of some other passages in which, you know, you could have in your limited understanding of what just those passages state, not taken in the fullness of the text of the whole new covenant. I could say you'd have a point. The reality is, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. That wasn't his purpose in coming. It was to fulfill it. And when you come into Christ, it's now been fulfilled on your behalf. The law of Moses is still in full effect for all those who are not in Christ. So therefore, Matthew 5 is correct. He did not come to abolish the law. That's not what he came to do. He came to fulfill it. And because the death has occurred, as chapter 9 said, we have been redeemed from the transgressions committed under the first covenant and it has now been made obsolete because of Christ for us. Essentially, all he's saying in Matthew 5 is, if you want to get into heaven apart from me, then you're going to have to keep the law of Moses perfectly because one day I'm going to give my body and your temporary sacrificial system to forgive sin will be voided. It will be no more. Because God will no longer look at that because he gave his son. So if you want to try to get in to heaven apart from me, this is what he's telling the people. He's teaching them this. Then you're going to have to keep the law of Moses perfectly. But here's the problem. You can't. You can't do it. It's impossible to keep it perfectly. To have never messed up. It's impossible. So he says, so you're up a creek without a paddle on that day when you stand before me. You're going to say, God, I did my best to keep the law of Moses. And you're going to say, yeah, but you didn't come into my son. Your name wasn't written in the book of life. So you're not going to get in because you weren't perfect. That's the whole thing of Matthew 5. 
Otherwise, Ephesians 2 would be a contradiction to it. So this concept is, he says he's done away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He became the access, the source of our redemption, the source of our sanctification, the source of everything that we can have in this new covenant. Jesus became the access point. The way you get sanctified is by your obedience to a standard of righteousness that has been set up for us in Christ Jesus in this new covenant. That's what Romans 6 talks about, 16 through 19. And its end leads to eternal life. You sow to the Spirit and you will reap eternal life. Sow to the flesh, you get corruption. As Paul says about even including himself in Galatians 6, 9 through 10. He says, and we will reap if we do not give up sowing to the Spirit, contextually what the passage is stating. Jesus has become our source of sanctification once and for all. There is no other source. You will not be sanctified by your obedience to the law of Moses. You will not be sanctified by keeping the dietary restraints. You will not be sanctified by keeping the feasts. You will not be sanctified by keeping any of the law of Moses. Your only standard or way to be sanctified is through Jesus Christ. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth in James 1.22. The whole concept is, is you get sanctified through your obedience and as you continually get sanctified it leads to your eternal life. Go read Romans chapter 6 towards the end because that's exactly what it says. Jesus, his body... Offered up on that cross has been, has become our source of sanctification, redemption, forgiveness, any of it. Not the law of Moses. He goes on, he says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time the single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He became the source. You want sanctification? You want to be sanctified more to the image of Jesus Christ? You're going to have to be in Christ and find the grace of God. It's the only possible way. Now, in this next passage, a lot of people get confused because they think that this covenant that's going to be made that he's referencing is the covenant he's going to make with his church and he's going to write his laws of the Old Testament on our hearts for us to obey. That's not actually what this is stating. Listen to what he says. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is the forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. He says, look guys, you came into the eternal blood of the covenant as he's listed in the end of Hebrews chapter 13. And you now have a source through Christ. Not through the law of Moses. That's not going to be your standard. That's not going to be your source to find anything. This concept of writing his laws on our heart is not the law of the law of Moses. Because Ephesians 2 says that the law of commandments expressed in ordinances has been abolished. Why would he write something that's been abolished on our hearts? Why would he write something in 2 Corinthians 3 that references the tablets of stone as ministry of condemnation? A ministry of death carved in letters on stone that has, had, that has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it in Christ. Go read it. 2 Corinthians 3. It's right there. Ephesians 2. It's right there. Point blank for what it says. Why would God write something on our hearts that has been made obsolete? I don't believe that that's what God is stating here. I believe that he's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant with a new law that I will make with Christ and through him to the people. It's the law of Christ. Just as it says in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, we're not under the law of Moses. That's not what he's writing on our hearts. What he's writing on our hearts is Christ. That's the law that we have. There most certainly still is a standard. But the standard is not that of the law of Moses. It's that of the perfection of Jesus Christ. 
That's why it says in Hebrews 12 that we must lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, looking to Jesus, the one who set the bar of the faith at the highest level, at the level of perfection. He says, now I want you to go run and obtain it. I want you to look at him, see that bar, see where it's at, and I want you to go and chase after it. The laws that he's writing is not his law under the law of Moses. That was a temporary system to prove our um, depravity of soul. That was all it was. And once Christ came, or I should say once we came into Christ, we're no longer under that schoolmaster, under that guardian, as Galatians 3 says. We now belong to another. And a death occurred that redeemed us from the covenant under that, uh, uh, that redeemed us from that first covenant so that he could establish the second one. So I don't believe that what he's stating here is that God has now made the law of Moses obsolete, that he's now made it to where it has no glory at all, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, that he's now abolished it, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, the dogma of Moses as, as referenced in the Greek. I don't believe he's writing that on our hearts. I believe he's simply writing his son. He's writing Christ. He's writing Jesus on a heart. And you could argue and say that Jesus kept the law, so therefore we need to. No, Jesus kept the law to fulfill the law on our behalf. We now live under the law of sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others, especially those who belong to the household of God. The church. He says that that's the law that you live under, is that you do as I did. You put yourself on a cross and you sacrifice your wants, you sacrifice your desires, you sacrifice your life for the sake of other people. That's what love is in truth. That's the law that you live under, which is why I brought up uh, 1 John three twenty three. This is my commandment that you believe in my son and that you love one another. By doing this, we know that we abide in him. It's not 613 commands that we go and do. It's if it's fulfilled by you sacrificing yourself in truth to love somebody else in accordance with the example of Jesus Christ, then you are fulfilling the law that we have in this new covenant. And you found forgiveness. Now listen to what he goes on to say. Therefore, brothers, since we... And I want you to notice how many times he uses a plural form of a, of a word that includes himself. And this is vital to understand if you're going to understand the rest of what he's going to talk about. He says, therefore, because we've been brought into this new covenant through the blood of Christ, because the old sacrificial system has been done away with, which the entire covenant has to be done away with, because in Deuteronomy he says, do not add to or take away from this law. If you do, it ain't going to go well with you. It's going to be a bad thing if you do any of taking away um, anything from this law or adding to it. He says, don't you dare try to make it 612 commands. It is 613 commands. And of those commands also included the sacrificial system as a part of it. So the only way that we could be brought into this new covenant is not to have said, oh, we're going to take um, you know, 47 commands and we'll bring those over with us. No. He says the entire covenant had to be fulfilled. Every part of it. The whole covenant is no more. It, it's dead. So that we can belong to another. So don't, don't think that it's about, well, you know, this is still a good one. This is still a good one. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to, you know, dishonor our parents and lie to them. We don't want to do all those things right, as the Ten Commandments Stephen talk about. No, the whole thing has been fulfilled. The only thing that remains is what is underneath the banner of love. And not just a humanitarian love where it's like we're just kind and gentle to people. No, no, sometimes it's the love that's going to get firm. Sometimes it's the love that's going to tell people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. It's a love that reflects truth because Jesus is truth and he is love, the embodiment of both. Jesus says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. I talked about in that chapter 9, that Jesus had to die, that his flesh had to die so that we could establish the second, the spiritual things. 
He says, and since we have a great high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's the spiritual semblance of what he has done for us through the spirit of regeneration and of renewal, as Titus 3 puts it. He says, um, not only have we received the blood for sprinkling, but we've also been washed with water. When Jesus in John 19 was pierced in the side, out came blood and water showing that he, as a physical portrayal, um, he became the source of spiritual renewal of forgiveness and cleansing. He says, let us hold fast the confession. Now this is where I want you to listen very carefully. The author is not saying you hold fast your confession as a proof that you really are saved. Listen to what he says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Jesus Christ, our hope of glory. Colossians 1. Let us hold, I'm sorry. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, meaning God will uphold his end. But we must hold our confession of Christ until the end. God is faithful to give us every promise that he has given to his people through Jesus Christ. He will surely do it. But we have the responsibility to hold the confession of Jesus as Lord over our life until the end. That's... Um, upheld 13 verses from now in, for, in verse 36. He says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not, neglect, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. He says, We, we need to be willing to stir up one another. It's, it's a Greek word. Um, uh, I don't even really know how to say it. Parosusmos. It means irritation, contention, or as iron sharpens iron, the concept is, is that sometimes your love is going to irritate the mess out of some people. They're not going to like you, and yet it's the greatest love that you can show them because you're stirring them up unto good works that are pleasing to God. You know, right now, this is actually one of my struggles right now as I look out and many who would call themselves Christians and part of the church of Jesus Christ and yet very basic simple commands they reason and justify away like I'll just be very honest one of them is um, women giving their womb up to the Lord for the control of what he wants to do with it very basic command in scripture and in Psalm 127 when he says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder builds in vain. And, and studying those words in the Hebrew simply means to obtain offspring and to increase in offspring. It says, unless God has the authority to do that in your life, everything you do for your children or lack thereof is in vain. He said, unless God has the authority to build the house the way that he wants to, to establish offspring through your womb, the, the amount that he wants to do, Unless he has authority over that, everything you do is in vain. He says in Romans 12, 1, present your body as a living sacrifice to God. These are basic, simple commands that we don't get to just put a hand in God's face and usurp control. We don't get to just go and say, okay, God, I, I want my, my boy, my girl, then I'm through. And, and I don't care what you have to say. That's all I want. So that's all I'm going to do. We don't get to say that. And yet so many people today do. And it's almost like it's just kind of this thing. It was like me and Jen, when we, we had a, a, um, a journey group meeting for our first one last night. And it doesn't matter what we have. We're always a spectacle everywhere we go. People know us as the people who have ten children. And people can't wrap their minds around, why would you have 10 kids? Man, I couldn't do that. As if your experience dictates God's ability. Oh, when, I, when I had a kid, I had a really rough delivery. And it was really hard. And, and so I don't want to go through that again. Who are you to get to decide what you will and will not do in accordance with the word of God? God says, present your body as a living sacrifice. You think Jim Elliot, the one who went and died for the sake of God and his gospel, 
Do you think that he, you know, would have been able to look at God and say, hey, hey, God, I don't really want to die for you, so somebody else can go do that. When God called him to do it, somehow we have this idea that we get to tell God what we will and will not do and think that we get to please him through Jesus Christ still. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ have crucified their flesh with its desires and passions. It's no longer about you. It's no longer what you want or what you don't. And me telling people this really makes me come across as unloving. And yet, he says this, going back to the text, Let us stir up one another. It's the word perosusmos, irritation and contention. It's a word that is, means that you're ruffling the feathers. Let us consider how to ruffle the feathers of one another unto love and good works. Do you do that or are you just more of the humanitarian love where you just like to be kind and gentle to people and you don't really tell them the hard truths. You don't really expose their sin as Ephesians 5 talks about. You don't really call things for how they are. If there's one thing that God's turned me into that I didn't used to be 15, 20 years ago is somebody who I don't really care what people think of me anymore. And I don't, I'm not real good at just pretending. I want to say things for how they are. I'm going to call things out. God's done that in me because that's not my natural disposition. Let me just tell you, one of the greatest acts of love that you can tell or that you can show somebody is calling out their sin. I mean, even Jesus, whenever he healed the guy, he told him, he says, go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Isn't that an interesting statement that Jesus would say? He didn't just pat the guy on the shoulder and be like, I love you so much. Man, just, just go and live your life. Do your thing. Go, be blessed, be happy. Man, go, go find out what makes you tick. What makes you happy? Just go do it, man. No, Jesus didn't say that. He says, no. Um, love epitomizing the flesh said to him, go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus didn't come to call the self-righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. There is a standard that we must live by. And if we're not living by it, then one of the greatest acts of love that you can do is to show somebody and tell them that they're wrong, that they're in sin. And, and this is my struggle right now is I look out and I see so many people who are walking in intentional sin. And maybe it's unintentional for many of them because they've never studied the word. They think that they can know Christ and not have to get into his word to study it out. And maybe that's because some pastor fed them that lie. It's like, hey, man, just read a couple chapters you know, this week or just read a couple verses a day and you'll be good. God, that'll, that'll please. I know you're busy. Study to show yourself approved. A workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We're supposed to show love unto good works. And he says, going on, as the day draws near, you need to make sure that you're meeting together, that you're fellowshipping with other believers that you're being united in faith and love with them in accordance with the truth of God's word. That you're not forsaking it. And yet I look out and I see so many people. It's like, oh, my job's telling me i got to work on Sundays. I get it. There might be the occasional time where if Sundays is the gathering day, whatever day it is that your church gathers, that that's the time the elders have set aside and said, hey, here's when we're going to gather. I get there might be some times where you're not going to be able to make it. Things happen. Emergencies take place. You know, Maybe there's this one day we have to fill in for somebody. That's why he says, but don't you dare make a habit of it. And this is what he goes on to say. Because one of the things that fellowship does is it provides accountability. It gives us that jolt in the arm of heaven's agenda in our life and keeps us mission-minded if you're in a good fellowship. Where the word of God is, is truly taught. Because listen to what he goes on in 26 to say. For if we go on sinning deliberately. Notice that the author includes himself. As well as a couple statements later on. To let us know that this is talking about people who are believers. Not just who profess to be a believer. But I want you to understand. This is a doctrinal statement that must be foundational. 
to the fullness of your doctrine. If you think that you are brought into Christ and all your past, present, future sins were wiped away, you have an impure doctrine. And this is a text that proves that. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The author includes himself and he says, if you go on sinning after coming to know Jesus Christ, after knowing the truth of the word, after being um, in a place in which you are now accountable to that and you choose to still go on and sin, he says... You are standing in a place where the blood of Christ will not cover that and you will give an account. You will give an account. Don't think that all your past, present, future sins were all wiped away at the time of salvation. You will give an account. This is a true statement that is absolute. It's just as much written as some of the other ones that people like to cling to and ignore this one. That's what he goes on to say. He says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That was ordered in the law. That if you set aside the law of Moses and said, I don't really want to do that. I know that that's what's written, but you know what? I really don't want to honor those purification things right now. I really would like to eat some bacon right now. He says, "Um, then you died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That, That was ordered. The two or three witnesses that said they, they know that you did this, then you are to be stoned to death for setting aside the law of Moses. Under that first covenant, he said that's how severe it was. Listen to what he says right after this about those who are in this new covenant in Christ. People who are Christians, who are part of the church. He says, how much worse punishment? I think dying on the evidence of two or three witnesses without mercy... I think that's a pretty big punishment. And he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Did you catch that? Not only does the author include himself about if we go on sinning deliberately, but he also says that these people that he's referencing are not people who have not been sanctified by the blood of the covenant. It's people who have been. Past tense. Not who could be sanctified or who one day might be, but have been sanctified by the blood of Christ. Past tense. That they've outraged the spirit of grace. Christian, don't think for one second that you can deliberately sin and get away with it with God. Don't think for one second that you won't give an account for it just simply because you pledged you know, your, your life to Christ at one point 15 years ago and you think that your past, present, future sins have all been forgiven through Him. This text with a resounding declaration would prove that to be untrue. This is when he goes on because he says another one that, that clarifies this is re- written about Christians. He says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Notice that he identified them as his people. Do you know there's only one group of people in this new covenant who are considered his people as belonging to his household? That's the church. It's not the Jews. He's not referencing the Jews here. The Jews had their chance. They blew it. Now they've been forsaken. As Luke 13 at the end of it talks about. That they are going to be on the outside looking in. As Romans 11 talks about a copto. That they were cut off from the, from the trunk. If they want to come in through Jesus Christ. God will cleanse it. He'll forgive it. But if they want to just base their lineage of saying we're God's people. And the lineage of being a Jew. God says then you're going to go to hell. With the rest of mankind. The only way to belong to him. Is to be part of his people. Is to be coming in through Jesus Christ. So here we have three identifications that he is referencing a believer. One, the author includes himself in it. Two, he says it's somebody who has been sanctified. And three, these are God's people. He says it's a fearful thing to fall, which is the Greek word epipto. It means to fall into one's power, to come under, to stumble through what you are doing and come under somebody else's power for judgment. It's not the same word that's used... In Hebrews chapter 6, when he's talking about who have fallen away, that's peripipto. It means to deviate from or to wander or to apostatize. It's not that. 
This is one that is referencing somebody who is simply stumbling into the hands of God's judgment. He said, that's a fearful thing, even for a Christian. Now listen to what he says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened. Notice that he's still talking about people who have been enlightened. He says, I want you to look back on the days of your salvation. I want you to look back when you first came into Jesus Christ. He says, when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Man, I can tell you some Christians today who don't joyfully accept the plundering of their property. And yet he says, these people who he just gave them a severe warning about continuing on in deliberate sin, he says they're doing things that many people in today's church don't do. And reason it away. Oh, no, 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 no. Somebody's going to come and try to plunder my property. I'm going to make sure that they don't get away with it. I'll shoot them if I have to. I've seen deacons who have had signs on their fence posts that have said, um, trespassers will be shot, survivors will be shot again. It's like, seriously? And yet the early church, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. When people came and took stuff from them, they joyfully accepted it because they knew that they had a better possession in heaven. Man, there's no way around what Hebrews 10 is saying. He is referencing a warning to Christians. Genuine Christians who have been born again to don't you dare put Christ to the test as as second Corinthians or I'm sorry first Corinthians 10 talks on he goes on and he says this therefore in 35 do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward Just don't don't you put that in the trash and think that it's really not as great of a treasure as what it was when you first got saved don't you throw away that confession He says, for you have need of endurance, of holding that confession until the end. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. He says, look, guys, you got to understand this principle. You have got to endure until the end. Matthew 10, 22 says... The one who endures to the end will be saved. You have got to endure till the end. You have need of endurance. So that after you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. He says, you will have your life through your faith in Jesus Christ. Do not throw away that confession. Hold it until the end. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-8, I have kept the faith, I have fought the fight, I have finished the race. Henceforth, because I have done that until the end, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which God will award to me, but not only me, but all those who have loved His appearing. He says, I will reward you for your enduring faith until the end. And you could go out there and try to say, well, you know what, a person who's really saved, they will endure to the end. And I'm just going to tell you, Read the text. Don't cling to what 1 John 2 says. That's talking about the spirit of the Antichrist. Come on. Don't give me 1 John 2 says. If they were really of us, they would have remained with us. All that's talking about is the spirit of the Antichrist that was coming in to try to destroy the church. It was never somebody who claimed and thought that they were a true believer. I have studied 1 John, those five chapters in 1 John. I have studied them extensively. But I've studied them alongside of Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10 and the fullness of the text. And I want to tell you what I've come away with is the reality is this, is that 1 John is teaching this basic principle. Is that if you were walking in a rebellious sin, in a life that was contrary to God, and then you say that you got saved, and then you continued in that same rebellious life contrary to the way that God wants you to live in Christ... You didn't really come to meet him. There will be a change in that. But First John is not dealing with somebody who's 20 years into the faith. John is dealing with somebody who is at the, being, the stage of being born of God. Did you really get saved or did you not? Hebrews is referencing somebody who now we're talking about has been in the faith for a while. 
You've got to understand how these fit together. You have been brought into this covenant with God through Jesus Christ by your confession of Him as Lord. And you must supplement the right kind of works to that in order to keep that which saves you, faith, strong. But if you begin walking in deliberate sin, your faith will get weaker and ultimately, as Hebrews 6 then says, you run the risk of apostasy, which I don't believe is an easy thing to do. Because God wants all His children to come to repentance. But as 2 Corinthians 3 says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. He is not slow to fulfill His promises toward you and is patient toward you. His church, His Christians, His people. Not wishing that any of you would perish but that all would reach repentance. But you must understand the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He's giving them a warning there to say, God doesn't want any of His children to perish. He doesn't want you to apostatize. And He'll do everything that He can within His power to keep you from doing that. But He will not violate your free will. This is why 2 Corinthians 3 says that, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 3, it says, The things that you suffer for the kingdom of heaven are to prove you worthy of the kingdom of heaven for which you're suffering. Hebrews is referencing people who have been in the faith for a while as evidenced by verse 32. And he says, hey guys, listen, if you shrink back, my soul will take no pleasure in you. If you abandon this faith and you walk away from that and you apostatize from the faith, which is a total desertion from the faith, he says, then my soul will take no pleasure in you because my soul only takes pleasure in Jesus Christ. That's why it says nothing can separate from the love of God in Jesus Christ. If your position is in Christ, you're, you're Gucci, as the, word, as the phrase says. You're good. You step out of that position of Jesus Christ, which is called apostasy, which is called a spiritual death, or a second death, as um, Jude puts it. He's saying you're stepping out of that which God takes pleasure in. That's why it says in Jude one twenty one, keep yourselves in the love of God. That is in the position of Jesus Christ. Listen what he says in thirty nine in this declaratory statement that he's trying to exhort them. He's not saying everything that he had just talked about was inconsequential and theoretical, and it was you know hyperbole of what you know they they um, it was all just theoretical. It's not really going to happen. No, he seemed pretty point blank. He seemed pretty firm. He seemed like he wasn't just trying to give them this half-hearted warning. He says this in this exhortation. This is exactly how the author is trying to state it. He says, I'm going to exhort you to remember who you are and to remember the identity that you have in Jesus Christ. He says this, that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He exhorting them to say, guys, I don't think that you've reached that point yet. I want you to understand who you are in Christ still. I want you to understand that you are among those who have faith and preserve their souls. Did you know that it was your faith in Christ, that confession of Him as Lord of your life, that that's what actually preserves your soul? In First Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to end it with this. I said I'll keep it under 45, I'm going to keep it under 50. But in this one he says, in 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-5, through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Meaning that He gave us Jesus Christ as the access point to come and be with the Father, to draw near to Him. He caused us and allowed that to be given unto us as a way for all mankind to be saved. Because God desires all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth and so be saved. He says, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. The author of Hebrews is simply stating, remember who you are. Because if you can take from this point and move forward and not engage in deliberate sin, not engage in wandering away and ultimately end up crucifying the Son of Man again and holding it up to contempt and apostatizing from the faith in which the same thing in which Moses struck the rock twice and was not allowed to go into the promised land. It's the same correlation. You cannot strike the Son twice. 
If you apostatize from the faith, you're done. And he says, but you're not in that position yet. I've given you that warning in chapter 6. I'm showing you that in chapter 10, that's leading to that warning that I gave you in chapter 6. I don't believe you're there yet. And I want you to remember who you are in Christ. I want you to remember your identity of who you are in Christ. We are among those who don't shrink back. We are among those who are going to have faith and preserve their soul. This is why Paul says the same thing to to Timothy in chapter 4 in verse 10. He says, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who who have believed. And backing up, he says, Training yourself for godliness because it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Guys, it doesn't get any more clear in what Hebrews 10 is saying. There's nothing from the law of Moses that brings God pleasure. Only Christ. Christ is the only thing that God's going to look upon in which we can offer any sort of a spiritual sacrifice. It is only acceptable through Jesus Christ. It's 1 Peter 2, I think it's verse 4 that says it. Maybe 5. Christ is everything. law of Moses has become obsolete. It's come to have no glory at all for those who come into Christ because of the glory that surpasses it. And because of that, if we go on then sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, because of what we've been given in Christ, because of how precious Christ is to God, and we then go and, and sin deliberately, God takes that even more seriously than He did under the law of Moses. He takes it more seriously than when somebody who's going to set aside the law of Moses, any one of those commands to say, you know what, I really don't want to do that one. God says, then you deserve death. And in the same way in this one, He says, how much worse punishment Do you think that somebody who claims the name of Christ, who has been saved under his blood and sanctified by his blood, who has now been brought into being labeled as my people, and they go on and sin deliberately? How much worse punishment do you think that person deserves? And the author is just trying to say, guys, remember how it was in the beginning when you had joy and love and you lived for Christ with a mission. Bigger than yourselves. Don't get tempted to go backwards into something about you. Remember who you are. Don't shrink back. Keep that confession, that faith until the end. And preserve your soul. Preserve your position in Christ. And so, it's a serious one. Hopefully you guys, it resonated with you and it's going to prompt you to go study more. Um, And I hope it encouraged you. Opened, opened your eyes and, and gave you revelation, um, but also gave you the seriousness of what we're dealing with in this covenant with Christ. It's not something that we can put into the test, as First Corinthians say. First Corinthians 10 says, go read it. Don't put him to the test. Just like they did when it says 23,000 fell in a single day among God's people. And so, you'll be blessed through your obedience to the word. And you're holding the confession of our hope. As he says, the Christ, our hope of glory. Hold your confession of Christ, of who he is until the end. And you will be rewarded with what God says in the end to all those who do. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Y'all be blessed.